Right now, though, we find ourselves in the book of First Peter, so open up in your Bibles there. Uh, as you open up to look at this letter, I want to read to you a, uh, a journal entry of, of a wife recounting a day, specifically an evening, that she had with her, her husband. She, she wrote in her journal these words uh, after an evening out with her husband. Just listen. She said, tonight my husband was acting weird. Most wives can relate to that, I'm sure. Um, we made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested that we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said, nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset, that it had nothing to do with me and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly and kept driving. When we got home, he just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed, but I still felt that he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I don't know what to do. That's the end of her journal journal, uh, entry. Now, that same night, Unbeknownst to the wife, the the husband also wrote in his journal, recounting the events of that evening, and here's what he put down. Rough day. Boat wouldn't start. Can't figure out why. The end. (laughs) Have you felt that in your relationship? Have you you ever experienced that? I, I like that little story because it, I think, in many ways captures sometimes the differences between Men and women. The, the, the wife felt that the, there was something wrong, that the husband was upset because he seemed distracted and she was really worried about it. The fact of the matter is the husband just kept thinking about what? The boat. Why is it not working? He can't figure it out. And, and so I, I raised this illustration, bring it to our attention, because for the next two weeks, this week and next Sunday, we're going to be talking about the esteemed institution of marriage. And we're going to be talking about it because that's where we find ourselves in 1 Peter. Our text this morning, um, the Apostle Peter is actually drawing us, drawing us into a discussion on marriage and specifically the relationship between husbands and wives. And I, I have to say, I have been just fascinated by marriage over the years. I've met couples that the first 10 years of their marriage was absolutely miserable, and the last 10 have been amazing. I've met couples who the first 10 years were amazing, and the last 10 have been absolutely miserable. And, and so as, as somebody who's even looked at my own marriage and, and tried to ascertain, Lord, what is it that you want for us? Here's the deal. God's word gives us such clarity and, and such direction and such help in all of these things. And so I'm grateful for the passage that we have before us today. So it's, it's going to be 1 Peter chapter 3, but I want to give just kind of two notes as we look to read this passage. We're going to read verses 1, uh, one through 7. But before we read these passages, just kind of two notes. First to the husbands here today. I want to just uh, speak, speak to you. This message is going to be primarily focused upon the, the role of the wife in the marriage. The first six verses of chapter 3 focus primarily on that. And so here's what I want you to do today, men. I, I really want the men here, even if you're not a husband, to pay close attention. And the reason why I want you to pay close attention is not so this week you can go to your wife and, and say, huh, were you listening? You didn't do what they've said. Uh, you know, this, that's not why I want you to pay attention. I want you to pay specific attention because next week what we're going to see is God calls us as men to live with our wives in an understanding way. And so 
this passage is so important for us because it's going to give us insight to understanding what it is that our wives are, are, are faced with, what it is that they are, are called to, and the only way that we can live with them in an understanding way is if we truly understand what God has called them to and how we help them in that. The second group of people that I want to address today are the singles that are here in our church. There are many of you that are single. You, you either haven't been married, maybe you've been, been divorced, and you're going to have the potential of looking at a passage like this and saying, well, well, what does this have to do with me? Do I have to be here? I'm going to get up and leave right now. I'm not married. It doesn't apply. Um, let me just say two things to that end. The first is this. Um, number one, a passage like this can ultimately be a passage that God wants you to begin dwelling upon and thinking about in case God brings you into a marriage relationship one day. And, and so it's kind of foundational for, for you to even be thinking about what you should be looking for in a spouse and how you might function within marriage. But then secondly, we're part of a church family. And here's the deal. Within a church family, there's going to be singles and there's going to be marrieds. And if you're a single person today, you're still part of a church family. And one of the ways that you can love your neighbor and live out your, your calling within the church family is to know what the scriptures have to say about this so that you might be the person who comes alongside and speaks words of encouragement and offers accountability to those who find themselves in those relationships. Does that make sense? And so, so with that in play, let's, let's go ahead now and let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It goes like this. Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and boy, is there a lot there, is there not? This is one of those uh, passages that is packed with, with so much meaning. Now, I'm going to, again, try and do my best to unpack as much of it as we can this morning. But the first thing that I want us to do before we run to thinking what this passage is saying is to notice a very important word that starts this entire section. What's the very first word of verse 1 of chapter 3? It's the word what? Likewise. Likewise. That word keys us to the to the fact that what we're about to read is an extension, a continuation of what had been previously said. In fact, it's pulling us into a comparison. Likewise, just as what I've said before, so this also applies. So we can't read this passage in isolation. We have to understand that it's in the context. And, and so what has Peter been saying previously? Because if we don't get this, we're going to misapply, misinterpret this entire section. If you were to go back to chapters 1 and 2, what we know is that Peter has made it his aim and his goal to speak to Christians and to get them to see their new and true identity in and through Jesus Christ. 
He comes at this pinnacle moment in chapter 2, and he says in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christian, this is who you are. You belong to God. You're beloved of, of him. Male, female, doesn't matter. You have this very unique and precious identity as one who's been bought with the precious blood of Jesus, holy and pure before him. You are citizens of heaven. That's why he calls us sojourners and exiles. You remember that. You are ultimately not of this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. So you have this very unique identity. And so Peter has been saying that, but right on the heels of that, he comes to this section midway through chapter two, and he says, while all of that is true, And while this identity then drives your interactions and your holiness as you engage with one another, as you embrace your identity, you live these holy lives. Well, while all of this is true, Peter then comes in in the middle part of chapter 2 and he says, but I don't want you to forget something. You do still live in this world. And what we saw midway through chapter 2 was that Peter comes and he says, God has in this world still ordains institutions, spheres of sovereignty, we call them, where we as the people of God are called to live. These spheres of sovereignty where, where there are authority structures that we must live inside of and abide by. And so we looked at one of them already. We looked at the, uh, the call to government and the fact that God has created government. It's given him a role and a purpose. And, and so we can look at our identity in Jesus and understand that it calls us to holiness, but we could also look at our identity in Jesus and say, well, the world doesn't matter to me. I'm not bound to any government. Uh, Those authorities don't matter because Jesus is my ultimate authority. But Peter comes and he's told us, no, listen, God has established different authority structures in the world and given them a purpose or role for the good of all humanity. And so we looked at, starting here in verse 13 of chapter 2, we're to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In verse 18, he says, servants, be subject to your masters. And he's talking there about household servants. He's not talking about slaves. This is more of an employer-employee relationship. And so when we understand that he starts this section by saying, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, Peter is drawing us into the reality that there's another institution that's been established by God, and that's the institution of family, of, of marriage. And that within the marriage, there's ultimately a structure. So if, you're, so if you're taking notes, one of the first things that we would say in summary of this passage we just read is this. Marriage is an institution created by God. It's one more of those institutions where God has created a structure, where he has designed it to function in a certain way, like government, like an employer and employee relationship, and like we're going to see later on in the church. And so we acknowledge as the people of God that marriage isn't something that man came up with. And it's definitely not something that man gives definition to. Marriage is something that's been created by God. Just go back and look at Genesis chapter 2. The creation of Adam and Eve. The man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. Marriage is something that God has ordained and God has established and God has given definition to. I'm not going to get into the fullness of it today. But our understanding of the scripture is that it clearly teaches that marriage is defined by God. And it is a union between a man and between a woman. And when that union takes place, they then take on the roles of husbands and wives. And so that leads us to kind of, by way of summary, the second main point that we see when looking at this passage, and that is this. Because marriage is an institution created by God, secondly, God has established different roles for husbands and wives within marriage. 
broadly speaking, that's what this passage is drawing our attention to. Husbands and wives have different roles within this institution of marriage. And we see this very clearly when Peter says, wives be subject to your own husbands. Nowhere in the text does he say, husbands be subject to your wives. And in fact, this phrase, be subject, is the exact same phrase that Peter used when describing how we relate to government as Christians and how servants are to relate to their their masters. It indicates a difference in role. Husbands and wives have different roles. At minimum, if this passage is telling us anything, it's letting us know uh, husband and wife, those roles are not interchangeable. So it begs the question then, right? If you're following along, so what ultimately then is the role of a wife within marriage? What is she called to? What's the difference here? Now, before I answer that, before we look at what does it mean to to be subject, because that, as we saw with government, is a loaded phrase, I want us to be absolutely clear as a church family on what the Bible teaches concerning men and women foundationally. And so if, again, you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. According to the Bible, God's word teaches that women and men have equal worth and value in the eyes of God. Can I get an amen to that? However, we're to think about ourselves as men and women. Before we talk about roles, we must understand that foundationally, men and women have equal worth and value in the eyes of God. One gender is not superior to or greater than another. In the immediate context, we know this because look at verse 7. Look at what it says about husbands relating to their wives. It says that the husband, i.e. men, are to show her, that is the woman, honor as a, check this out, a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now you can look at that and it can be kind of like a throwaway phrase. You can just be like, okay, fellow heirs, grace of life. But no, this is huge what Paul is saying here. He is calling women along with men fellow heirs joint heirs of this same thing, the grace of life. Paul would write to the, to the church in Galatia, he would say, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This idea of men and women having equal worth and value in the eyes of God, being joint heirs of the promises of God, is something that was absolutely radical at the time that this letter was written. Because when this letter was written, the dominant thought amongst the educated Greco-Roman people of that day was that a woman by nature was inferior to a man. Some of what they said about it was this. They believed that a woman lacked the capacity for reason that a male had. A woman was ruled by her emotions and was as a result given to, quote, poor judgment, immorality, intemperance, wickedness, and greed. Their words, not mine, okay? All right, just just being clear on that. I am quoting Greco-Roman thought. Oh, and then they also said this. She is considered untrustworthy and contentious. This was the prevailing view of women at the time that this letter was written. And yet, church, we see none of that in the Bible. Nowhere in this letter or in the rest of the New Testament does the Bible teach that women are inferior 
to men. Nowhere in the rest of the Bible does it say that women are intellectually substandard or that they're more prone to sin or, to, or that they're weaker than men. You're not going to find that. Now, some of you are like, oh, but Dave, doesn't it just say here in verse 7 that a woman is the weaker vessel? Man, have I heard this phrase used, and it has been used and abused. And so if you're a woman here today, I want you to clearly hear and understand that when he's talking about the woman being a weaker vessel, it's not the fact that a woman is less than a man, that a, that a woman has some deficiencies within her. No, instead, what Peter is doing here is he's referring to the fact that in her role, she's in a position of weakness because as we're going to see, the woman is one who comes underneath the authority of the man. And, and, and so what Peter's ultimately saying is, husbands, you better watch yourself because your wife has been called to something where she comes under you and you better not use your power to abuse her. He's not saying that she's more prone to sin or that she's weaker in some some way. He's simply acknowledging her role. And then if this weren't enough, to further illustrate the equality of men and women in the eyes of God with regards to their value and worth, with regards to their, to their giftedness. You see, see, I'm emphasizing all this so much because if we don't get this, if we don't believe this foundation, we're, we're going we're gonna to take this passage to places that will ultimately harm each other. But just to show how the Bible exalts the role of a woman, all you got to do is go back to when God created Adam and Eve. And when he created Eve, and we read this in Genesis 1 and 2, he creates Eve, and he uses this word to describe Eve. He says, I'm making Adam a helper suitable for him. Do you remember that? Remember that? It's an oldie, but it's a goodie, right? So, so, so he comes, he says, I'm making a helper suitable for him. And he uses the word, the Hebrew word, azer, for the word helper. Now, something that you've probably heard me say if you've been around the church for some time is this. Listen. Someone can't logically be a helper to someone else unless they are equal in strength or stronger than the person that they're helping. Because when a child comes to you and they offer to help you with a project, you can be, oh, that's cute, you're my little helper. But they're not really helping you unless they know what they're doing, unless they compliment you in some way. And so when Eve is made for Adam... God has made someone that is complementary to him that can actually help him. In fact, that very same word, Azar, where, where it's called, where Eve is called the helper of Adam, God uses that same word to refer to himself in Psalm 33:20 as the helper of Israel. So check that out, ladies, here today. When God calls you a helper he is using a term for you that he uses to describe himself that's pretty powerful isn't it so the scriptures teach that women wives are co-heirs of eternal life they're of equal value and worth they're just as significant and just as important as any man is according to the bible and if you're a part of valley center community church and you are a woman, I want you to hear me say as clearly as I can that you have worth and you have value and who you are is someone who's been made in the image of God. And no matter what society tells 
you about you or what makes you powerful or what makes you great. Ultimately, you push that all to the side and say, I am someone who has been created by God. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I have purpose. I have role. I have worth. I have value because I belong to him. Because it's only when we get this, only when we understand the, as I call it, the ontological equality, the foundational equality of men and women in their very being and the way that God has made them complementary to one another, can we begin to understand then, then this design for the different roles. And so now we come to it. What is the role of a wife? How's it defined? How's it understood? Well, fortunately for us, we don't have to guess at it. This phrase which can be loaded in one sense if you don't understand that, that men and women are of equal worth and value in the eyes of God. This phrase, be subject, comes from the exact same phrase that Peter used when he described how we're to relate to earthly governments, how household servants are to relate to their employers. And as we saw in both of those cases, to be subject means, well, number one, it means you have the choice not to be subject. It means you're not in a position of oppression and forced into that. To be subject means that instead you willingly come under the leadership and the authority of another. This is what to be subject means. To willingly come under the leadership and authority of another. It it means that you acknowledge that there's an authority structure in place. As we do with government, when we say we're subject to the government, we recognize that the government of the United States or the place where we live has been instituted by God to serve a purpose in our life. And so when a wife is called to be subject to her husband, she's acknowledging that the husband has been given a role different from her. And it is a role that ultimately is one of of leadership. And we can say that for a number of reasons. First off, look at how it says here that the wife is to act respectfully towards her husband. This word here for respect has a very broad meaning in the Greek, but when it's applied or used in the context of people and their relationship with one another, it's ultimately used to refer to the acknowledgement that the one that you're being respectful to has a position that is uh, above you, that has a position of authority. But listen to me very carefully. Every time that you see me, hear me say above or come under, and you think of hierarchy, you need to think of hierarchy. But that doesn't mean just because there's a hierarchy that the person at the top is any better than the person that's underneath. Are you tracking with me? I'm going to use an illustration a little bit, just buckle up, that will help bring this all, all together. But when Peter says wives are to, to act respectfully, he's acknowledging the fact that wives... The position you have is, is not the position of headship. It's not the position of, of leadership. In fact, this is further emphasized. Look down at verse 5 again. Peter gives the example of Sarah from the Old Testament. He goes old school and he says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him what? Lord. Now, husbands, this doesn't mean that this week you get to go out and be like, <clears throat> that's uh, Lord David to you. Uh, that's, not what it's, that's not what it's about. She called him Lord because she was showing him respect. She was recognizing his, his headship. But Peter goes to the example of Sarah to, to show and to illustrate, well, this is what it looks like to be subject. 
It's not just that Sarah knew that Abram had a different role than her. It meant that she knew that she was to follow where he led. And boy, boy, did she have to follow him to some crazy places. Boy, did Sarah have to, I'm sure at times, say, really, that's where we're going? You believe this is the case? God comes to him and he says, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave your religion. I want you to leave everything and go to the place I will show you. But I'm not going to tell you where it is yet. Just start traveling. And then Abraham brings that message to his wife and says, so I'm thinking about moving. (laughs) Why? Because God, who? God, this guy, he's told me that we need to leave everything here and go. And what does Sarah do? She comes alongside. She comes underneath him and she follows him where he leads. Sometimes she follows a little bit too willingly and sometimes doesn't push back in a couple of instances. But I think this is why ultimately Peter uses her in his example. She followed her husband where he led. So, so as I've been working a definition of what is the role of a wife according to this passage, I would say it's this. It's, it's kind of a threefold sort of definition. It's to acknowledge, support, and willingly follow the leadership of her husband. What is the role of a wife to acknowledge, support, and willingly follow the leadership of her husband? And listen, Peter's not the only one to say this. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 5. He says it when he writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There's this distinction between husbands and wives. Wives are to come under the, the leadership of their, their husbands and follow them. Now, what does that look like in application? We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but here's where I need to stop and kind of give a disclaimer because some people, when they hear what I just said there because of our cultural context and because of certain abuses, we have the ability to kind of turn that off. We're going to say, well, this is that kind of a message. Bear with me because like I did with government, we have to be clear about something. Are we saying here that this passage is teaching the servitude of a wife to her husband? Are are we saying here that then husbands have free reign to dictate within the marriage whatever the family is going to do? The answer to both those things is no. In fact, just as a side note, I didn't know I was going to have time, but I'm going to take this for a minute. Did you notice how the wife is called to submit to only her own husband? Twice he says it in the text. Did you see that? I think that's huge. Wives submit to your own husbands. Wives be subject to your own husbands. Why do you think Peter does that? Why do you think he does that? Because he's making it abundantly clear that, that listen, this sphere sovereignty thing, this relationship between you and your husband as a man, it only applies to your marriage. Like, I'm not here, um, and your wives are not subject to me, right? And so, so women in general, like, if you're not married to a guy, he, he ain't got no business telling you what to do, okay? So, so like, be clear, like, hey, this, is, this was in the confines of your own marriage. I think that's a protection to women. And I think sometimes that gets ultimately uh, abused in certain cultures, Saudi Arabia, certain Middle Eastern cultures. We see where a woman can't go outside without a man being present, and there's an oppressive nature to that. Because there's this kind of like relationship of coming under the authority of another and the give and take that that looks like. God has designed that for the purpose of a very intimate covenant relationship. We're going to see more of that next week. But here's two things that I want to say just as kind of like disclaimers. Number one, while the wife is called to acknowledge, support, and willingly follow the leadership of her husband. Number one, if a husband calls a wife to sinful behavior, she must not what? Follow. She can't obey. Just as we saw with governments, if your husband is calling you to sinful behavior, you must not follow. There are limits to this whole acknowledge, support, and follow 
your husband. The reason for this is ultimately clear. Wives, your ultimate authority is Jesus. And he calls you to be holy as he is holy. And if your husband is calling you to something other than holiness and using his position to guide you in that way, you must not follow. Which leads me to say something to the husbands. Because I I don't believe not any of the men would do this here. None of the husbands would do this. But I'm just going to tell you right now. In this text and nowhere in the rest of God's word, guess what? Husbands, it's not your wife to enforce. It's not your responsibility to enforce your wife being subject to you. You're not going to find in the Bible that husband, it is your job to make sure that your wife is subject to you. God's word calls her to that. God's word calls you to proclaim God's word to one another, but you're not the enforcer of of this. This is not a club to be used. And so if a husband is engaged in sinful behavior, secondly, the wife must call it out. Just because you're called to acknowledge, support, and willingly follow your husband doesn't mean that if your husband is in sin, you don't call it out. Because ultimately, you are first and foremost a brother and a sister in the Lord before your husbands and wives. Because guess what goes on into eternity? You know what relationship goes on into eternity? Your relationship as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Your relationship at husbands and wives, that disappears the moment Jesus comes back. And so first and foremost, we have a responsibility to one another in Christ. To, to encourage one another in the faith, to exhort one another in the faith. And a husband can do that towards his wife, and a wife can do that towards her husband. And if either one is in sin and in a pattern of sin, God has called us to point that out and to call that out. And just because a wife's role is to follow and to support and to acknowledge her husband's leadership position doesn't mean that she is hamstrung from being able to speak into her husband's life and draw his attention to areas of sin, just as the husband can do for the wife. This ultimately also means that if a wife is a, or I'm sorry, if a husband, and it can go the other way, if a husband is abusive towards his wife, ultimately she's got to call that sin out. And she must ultimately seek the protection. And that's, in fact, where the sphere of the church and the sphere of the government comes into play. The role of the church is ultimately to call out and to speak against sin when it is present to bring the hope of the gospel, to, but to call things for, for what they are. And if a husband is abusing a wife, this passage doesn't negate the wife from coming and calling out that sin and seeking the protection that's necessary for, for her. Are, are we tracking here? Are we all following with this at this point? Because what we're going to see now is this, is, is when this is ultimately lived out in the right way, when the wife is living in her role the way that God has designed it and the, and the husband is living in his role the way that God has designed it, there's, there's a beauty and there's a harmony that exists. And we know that ultimately all of this is possible and we know that this is the aim, that just because somebody has a role of following another doesn't mean that they are less than. And the reason we know that this role of coming alongside and supporting another isn't a role that makes somebody less important is because ultimately this very relationship is found demonstrated most clearly in how the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in relationship with one another. Did you know that? 
When you read the scriptures, Jesus Christ himself is, for us and for wives, the example of what it looks like to function within a relationship where each person has different roles, and yet, and yet those roles beautifully work together in such a way that it is for the good of all, and God is most glorified. When we look at Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would anyone here, well, I hope not. I mean, there could be somebody, so don't raise your hand. According to the Word of God, Jesus Christ is equal with God the Father. Can I get an amen to that? And that he's equal with the Holy Spirit. And that the triune God, with, within their very nature, there's this equality that exists. But the Scriptures clearly teach that Jesus Christ, God the Son, willingly subjects himself to the will of the Father for the purpose of your salvation and my salvation. He comes under the Father. He's sent from the Father to this place. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his one and only Son. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, with with literally uh, tears like drops of blood coming from him, Jesus cries out, Father, if there be any way for this cup to pass from me, yet not what? My will, but whose? Yours be done. The Son of God comes and illustrates to us a role where he humbles himself, as Philippians 2 says. And he submits himself to the will of the Father. And so when we read in this text that wives are to subject themselves, to to come to be subject to their husbands, this does not imply an inferiority. What Peter is doing here is he's drawing us into the design of God saying this is how God has created the institution of marriage to function. If I can jump ahead to, to next week, I'm, I'm just going to say, say this about husbands. The role of a husband is to lead his family in such a way that it blesses and benefits them. That's the role of a husband, to lead your family in such a way that it blesses and benefits them. And so the role of a wife, check this out, is to acknowledge support and willingly follow the leadership of her husband. And so if a husband is using his leadership to bless his family, the wife should be like, I'm all for that. And I want to support that. I want to work in harmony. And I want to see this be done to the glory of God. See, this is how God has designed these roles to to come together. And, And I was thinking this week of how necessary this kind of design is in a relationship where where two people are trying to head towards the same goal and are made complementary to one another. In the Olympics, there's a sport called double skull roll, uh, rowing. Are you familiar with this? You've probably seen it, right? You got two people in a rowboat together. Each one of them, they, had, they both have two oars. You've seen this. And, they, and they're, they're stroking and they're, and they're going down the river just as, as fast as they can. You know, for double skull rowers to, to work well together, did you know that one of the two people in the boat has to take a leadership role. One of them has to get the pattern started. One of them has to set forth the pace. Because if, they, if, if, if each one, if one person in that boat ultimately doesn't subject themselves to another, they're not going to find the harmony. They're not going to find the balance. They're not going to find the power necessary to win the race. Here's the crazy thing in double skull rowing. At the end of the day, if your team wins the gold medal, does one person get a bigger gold medal than the other person? <laughs> well, you were the one who set the pace, so you get the bigger gold medal than the Is that how it works? No, the team gets the gold medal. 
But a, but a team that, that really understands how it's supposed to function, one person recognizes that their role is different than another, and they're doing everything within their might to support the person who's taking on that leadership role. And within marriage, God's given that to the husband, and he's given that role to come alongside to, to the wife. And when it works... When a wife understands her role, and when a husband, as we'll see next week, truly embraces his role, there's a beauty and there's a harmony that comes together. Now, we can understand that intellectually. We can talk about that here. We can say, okay, I kind of I get the picture of that. But there's two things I want to say in closing. And you know that whenever I say in closing, I'm not really, you know, even close to landing the plane. Thank you. Amen to that. Um, there's two things. Two things that I think are important for us to realize that Peter draws from this text. The first one is this. A wife can only embrace her role through hope in God. Did you see that in the text? Did you see how Peter said, listen, wife, if you're looking for a a, a cultural motivation here, if if you're thinking that you can acknowledge, support, and willingly follow the leadership of a man, even at times when he's imperfect in that, in your own strength, it ain't gonna happen. Your hope must be in God. There's two ways that we see this. Let me read verses three through four. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very, what? Precious. In the middle of this, all of a sudden, Peter throws in this thing about, about beauty and the external versus the internal. And it seems kind of out of place. Is, is he simply coming here and he's telling us, be careful what you wear? Well, well, well there's, there's an element to that. But what he's really drawing our attention to is, is, dear woman of God, if we're going to live this out, ultimately, your heart has to be the place where you focus your time and your energy If you're focusing on the external beauty, you're you're focusing on the wrong thing. There needs to be a cultivation of the inner person and of the heart. Your greatest concern is, is my hope in Christ? Am I truly looking to to him? This is all the more solidified when he says in verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Hope in God. A wife can only embrace her role through hope in God. The reality is we as humans are creatures of hope. It shapes us. It it motivates us. We're, We're fueled by hope. And so if the wife, at the end of the day, is simply hoping in, in her husband, trusting in her her husband, trusting in even what she can do to, to manipulate or, 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 to, or to lead her husband in a direction, instead of saying, no, ultimately, my hope, my trust is in the Lord and his ability to sustain me, his ability to walk with me through, through this. Then and only then can the wife fully embrace this role. It's why in the section literally right before this, when talking about servants, here's what Peter said. Speaking of Christ, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then right after this, he says, likewise, wives, 
the ability for a wife to fulfill her role, and I will argue next week as well for a husband to fulfill his sacrificial life-giving role, requires our hope to be in God, to rest daily in the gospel of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that the women of this church would be an example to the watching world, to their husbands and their children's, what peace there is when we hope in God. But then there's finally this, and I want to close with it. Now I'm really closing. Is that a wife, as she takes on this role, did you notice in the very beginning, I saved what I feel is almost the best for last. As a wife fully understands her role and lives that role out, wives, God says this of you. Your role as a wife who acknowledges, supports, and willingly follows your husband's can have, this is amazing, this is, this is beyond words almost, can have redemptive implications. Do you know what I mean by that? Salvific implications can have the ability, if God so chooses, to actually to alter a situation where, where God is glorified and where reconciliation and, and healing and salvation can take place. Just look at what he says here. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do you hear what Peter is saying? Wives, as you live out this role, even as your husband potentially might not be fulfilling his role, You conducting yourselves as God calls you to by putting your hope in God can ultimately have not just, I believe, potentially taking someone who is not saved to salvation because you're demonstrating the gospel, but can ultimately take a husband who's not living as they should and ultimately, well, as it says there, bring them back. A number of years ago, I shared a story with you that means a lot to me. And it bears repeating because it has to do with this passage. There's a young woman by the name of Laura who is a fun-loving and slightly rebellious teenager. She and her friends enjoyed a good party, and she had her fair... um, How did I say this? She had her fair share of suitors. You can fill in the blanks. When she was 18, her free-spirited days came to a screeching halt when she got pregnant by her boyfriend. Not wanting to have a child out of wedlock, she and her boyfriend married, and not long after that, she gave birth to their first child. For this couple, life was not easy. She and her husband were still teenagers. They were thrust into adulthood, and for the next several years, they struggled to make ends meet. Even though her husband worked, They found themselves needing government assistance, family assistance. Now, during that time, both Laura and John never fully moved out of their adolescent ways. There were still parties, and in their marriage, there were arguments and frustration. Her father would say he didn't think that the marriage would last. But it was during this time that Laura's brother became a Christian, And he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with his sister. And soon, Laura, although she had grown up in a church, 
repented of her sin, placed her faith and trust in Jesus Christ, she became a Christian. However, her husband did not. While her circumstances didn't change, she did. She was still married to the same selfish, unbelieving man. Life was hard. She loved her son and her husband, but she didn't know what to do. She desired to be holy as Christ was holy, while her husband did not. She desperately wanted her husband to come to faith in Christ, but she was at a loss. During that time, by God's grace, an older, more mature Christian woman met with Laura. One day while they were meeting, they came across this very passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6. through 6. They read it together, and this woman looked at Laura and encouraged her. Encouraged her to not nag her husband. But instead, to win him over without a word by a submissive and godly behavior. For some reason, that resonated with Laura, and she chose to attempt it. It was not easy. She and her husband had a circle of friends who, as I said, enjoyed to party. Laura's husband noticed how she did not like to participate in their activities like she once did, and he more than once expressed his displeasure with her. This went on for over two years. Yet Laura persisted as God gave her grace. One day, Laura heard of a Christian conference that was coming to town. She thought, maybe, just maybe, I'll invite my husband to go. To her great surprise, when he invited her, her husband said, yes. Her godly, submissive behavior had softened his heart. He agreed to attend that conference. And it was at that conference that for the first time, her husband sat there. And midway through the week, he heard the message of the gospel clearly articulated. The Holy Spirit opened his ears to hear and receive the message. And on Thursday night of that week, Laura's husband and my father, John Wojnicki, placed his faith in Jesus Christ and became a Christian. My mom's changed behavior, her purity, her respect, her submission to my father won over my dad's heart so that he agreed to go to that conference and it was there that he heard the gospel and believed. This isn't just something that was written 2,000 years ago and might or might not have application. You and I weren't there during those early years of my parents' marriage, but I can tell you this from the testimony of my parents and the testimony of their friends. If my mom had not ultimately truly taken to heart what God's word had said on this, I I can guarantee you that they would not still be married today, and I probably would not even exist (laughs) because I was the third born. (laughs) So when I read this passage... I come to it in a way that moves me deeply because I know that it is something that God used in my own family's life. A wife's role can have redemptive implications. This passage by itself, taken in isolation, is a passage that could be abused. It's a passage that can be misapplied. 
But today, my hope is that by coming to it, we would just begin to see that, no, instead, God does have a design within marriage. Wives do have a role, and husbands have a role as well. And this is just the beginning as we're going to come back to it next week and seeing that as a wife fulfills her role, hoping and trusting in God, not only can, can she potentially win her husband over, but ultimately as she fulfills that role, she is modeling in her own role the very character and nature of, of Jesus Christ. My prayer for us as a church is that this would be a place where husbands or wives we continue to come alongside one another, proclaiming the equality and worth that we have as image bearers of God, as his children, as co-heirs, and then supporting one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, celebrating one another in the roles that God has given us ultimately for each other's good and for his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we read a passage of scripture like this, and Father, in many ways, it can feel disconnected from a lot of what's happening in our lives in, in the sense of it's, it's hard for us to, to kind of put our arms around it and really understand, like, how, how, does this, how does this work in practice? Well, Lord, before we jump to all of those things, I pray that we would just take a moment, step back, and see, and see just very clearly, Lord, what, what you demonstrate in the relationship within the Godhead. Lord, how those roles and relationships all work in such beautiful harmony as the Son comes to the Father, as the Spirit is sent from, from the Son, that, that, Lord, our marriages, our, our relationships, Lord, that we would seek to strive to walk according to that pattern that you have created. And that for our dear wives here today, the women that fulfill these roles, Lord, may they see the redemptive implications of them, Lord, living out what you've called them to. May husbands, Lord, embrace their roles in such a way that they will be a blessing to their families and to their children and their wives. And may, as the world looks in upon these relationships, may it see the gospel in action for the praise and the glory of your name. And so we ask these things through Christ our Savior and all God's people said, amen.